Well, Merry Christmas, church. It is good to see you this morning. Thank you for being here. I hope you've had a good Christmas morning, uh, and I hope being able to gather as the body of Christ here on this Sunday morning, we are gathered not because it is Christmas, but because it is Sunday. And for 2,000 years, this is what Christians have done um, on Sundays. And so thank you for being here as we worship the Lord and study his word together. I invite you to take your copy of God's word and turn to Galatians chapter 4. We're taking a one-week break from our series in Mark um, to consider a Christmas message from uh, the New Testament epistle of the Apostle Paul to uh, the Galatians. Next week, we will be back in Mark, picking up in Mark chapter 10. I invite you, if you have your Bibles opened and ready, to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to read the first seven verses, Galatians chapter 4. This is kind of picking up, even though it's the beginning of a chapter, it's picking up in the middle of a thought, and I'm going to explain the thought here in a moment for us. Starting in verse 1, Paul writes, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave. Though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let's pray together. Father, this morning we are grateful to gather together as the church of God here at Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you for this family. We hear so often how Christmas is about family, and while we know it is about so much more, we do recognize that it is about this family, that you the power of your Holy Spirit and through the gospel of Jesus Christ have brought together, knitting us as one local body of believers. So I'm thankful to gather with my family this morning. We're thankful to be able to do so as we honor Jesus and remember his incarnation, remember his coming for us that we may no longer be slaves to sin, but heirs of God in the family that you have made us a part of. Thank you for this. Would you bless us during our time in your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Would you be seated? This morning's sermon, which I intend to be shorter than normal, we'll see. Y'all know. I mean, I try my best, but you've known me for a long time now. Is entitled The Fullness of Time. I, again, I'm going to try to be short talking about the fullness of time. The last thing I said to my children last night was don't come downstairs until 7 o'clock. 
Those were literally my last words. Do you think it happened? No. The big one would have been all right, but that little one just could not handle it. Passed about 6.40 this morning as he heard the adults in the house up and stirring. I really just wanted to get that first cup of coffee in. But we do this in life. We, we set times and sometimes they seem arbitrary to us and sometimes we have a purpose and a, a meaning behind it. And sometimes we make it, other times we don't. There are those of you who don't know what we do for the first five to seven minutes of our worship services every Sunday morning because you just can't quite get here on time. I, I, I understand. But we make plans based off of time all the time. But what we're going to see this morning is that God himself made a plan before the foundation of the world to do something in specific time. Listen, God is not bound by time. God, God is not a part of time. He exists outside of time eternally and yet chooses to work in time because his creation is in time and what God chooses to do that Paul describes for us here in Galatians 4 was at the exact right time. Now, for what I'm hoping is a little bit briefer of a sermon, it is kind of a longer main idea, but I promise you it's fairly simple once we get into it. The main idea of today's sermon is that through his son Jesus, the Father has made a way for us to be redeemed from our sin and secured by his spirit as members of his family. This is what we celebrate as we gather week after week as the body of Christ. We celebrate that the gospel of Jesus has unified us together as a local church as a part of God's family, but it's also what we recognize and celebrate and sing about at Christmas. That in just the right time, God acted so that we could be saved and secured no longer as slaves, but as heirs in the family of God. Just the right moment. The Father sent his Son so that we could be saved. This is the message and meaning of Christmas, and it is what we will be reminded of this morning from Galatians chapter 4. We'll see this over the course of these seven verses in three parts. The first, the desperate need of humanity's waiting. So many of our Christmas songs sing about waiting, and one of the things I like those, I often encourage Pastor Brian, let's sing some more of the the songs about waiting, primarily because it speaks about the need that humanity had prior to the coming of Jesus as they waited for the Savior to come. But it also speaks of our need as the church of God to continue to wait. It's why we do Advent, why we light the candles every year. It's because it reminds us of our need to wait on the second coming of Jesus. But before that first coming, before the incarnation, humanity had a desperate need. Humanity was in a desperate state as they waited as slaves for a redeemer. Paul begins this chapter by saying, I mean that heirs, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also 
When we were children, we're enslaved by the elemental principles of the world. What Paul is describing in the first three verses of this chapter is the desperate state that humanity was in prior to the coming of Jesus. And he compares them in, in using a metaphor of a child born into, we could say, a wealthy household. And he says that this child, this heir, who will one day inherit everything in the household is really no different than the slaves or the servants in the house. Because he doesn't actually get to control those things. Even though he owns those things, even though he's the owner of everything, he says at the end of verse 1, he is still under a guardian and a manager until a specific time, until a date that was set by his father. So humanity waits, Paul is saying. Humanity for centuries was waiting as under these managers and under these guardians, which we'll kind of unpack that metaphor in a moment, until God acted. And these guardians and managers, as we see how Paul was speaking about this at the end of chapter 3 and how he would continue to speak about it and how he spoke about it in other places, really shows us of the desperate need that humanity had for a Savior. If we back up at the end of chapter 3, I told you that Paul, I'm kind of picking up in the middle of a thought here. So let's see how he's finishing that previous chapter. Starting verse 23, he writes, Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was, and notice we'll use the same word here, our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we, no longer, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus, and you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, heirs according to his promise. And then that's when, at the beginning of chapter 4, he starts that metaphor. So the, the first idea of this guardian that Paul gives us is that the law was our guardian. That the Old Testament law that showed people their, their sin, this is what the law did. The law revealed our sin to us and said to a specific group of people that if you want to live in right relationship with God, if you want to be the people in whom God dwells in your midst, then there are certain things you're going to need to do. But if you've ever read the Old Testament, here's what you know. They were terrible at doing it. They were just awful at it. And by the way, before you kind of get a little self-righteous and think I would be better at it, no, you wouldn't. We are terrible at keeping God's law. And the, but the law serves as this guardian. The law serves as a reminder to us of just how incapable we are because of our sin nature to please God. But that's not the only thing that that's, speaks to our desperate need. If we go to John chapter 8, Jesus says this. He said to the Jews, John tells us, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciple. And if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And they answered, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. 
So not only is the Old Testament law this guardian that reveals our sin, we are truly, outside of Jesus, slaves to sin. We are controlled by sin. That it, it, it owns us and bosses us around. And instead of doing what we should do to please God, we do what our sin tells us to do, which is not pleasing God. But Paul uses a word here in this opening section of Galatians chapter 4. In the, in the, the end of verse 3, he says that we're enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. Meaning that our, our, the desperate state of our waiting isn't just that we're under the law. It isn't just that we're slaves to our sin. But we have a real spiritual enemy that oppresses us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the apostle Paul writes to that church and he said, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So most often when Paul uses that, that term principles, he's most often speaking in the spiritual sense. So here's the way that we need to view humanity's state outside of Christ under the law, proving that we can't please God, enslaved and controlled by our sin and oppressed by a spiritual tormentor in the enemy, Satan. We have a desperate need for redemption. And then God acts. And we see the perfect implementation of God's plan for redemption. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, not a moment too soon, not a moment too late, but at the right moment, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, going all the way back to the early church, people have have thought about what Paul meant when he said the fullness of time. And it's been explained by commentators in many ways. Some viewed the period of time that Jesus lived under, which was known as the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. It was about a 200-year period of time where Rome was generally at peace. And because Rome was generally at peace, the world was generally at peace. And Jesus was born in the very midst of it. Jesus was born, God sent Jesus born during a time when the Romans had built roads literally everywhere across the empire. For the first time, three different continents were connected by roads, some of which still travel today. The Greek language had spread across the known world, becoming a common language in which uh, literature was written and, and science and math were taught and, and trade was done. For the first time, urbanization had taken hold, not just in certain pockets, but across an entire civilization. Others view the fullness of time really as the fulfillment of what God had been promising. And I actually think it's both. I think it's both a, that society was ready, that, that God had prepared the world for this moment, but that God had also, through his prophets... Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, who had spoken of the coming Messiah, that the time was now right both spiritually and socially for Jesus to come. It wasn't arbitrary. 
It wasn't just randomly chosen. It wasn't early and it wasn't late. As the great reformer John Calvin writes of this verse, he says, the time which had been ordained by the providence of God was seasonable and fit. Therefore, the right time for the son to be revealed to the world was for God alone to judge and determine at just the right time. God implemented his perfect plan of redemption. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, we are told. He sent his son. He didn't send a mighty man of old. I referenced this if you were in our our, um, Christmas Eve service yesterday. I talked about this a little bit and I said I was going to unpack it a little further this morning. And this is that point where we want to do this, that that he didn't send some mighty man of old. He didn't send just another one in the line of the prophets. He sent his one and only son. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul says he is speaking of Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Don't be thrown off about verse 15 that says he's the firstborn of all creation. It's speaking of Jesus' right as an heir, not as him being like the first created thing. He can't be the first created thing because all created things were created through him. He is the heir to all things, fully God. And yet, as Paul says in Galatians 4, also born of a woman. He is the son of God, but born of a woman. Born of a woman is a phrase that doesn't really require a lot of explanation, does it? Because we were all born of a woman. In Job chapter 14, we read that man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. This is just speaking of natural life, the humanity that we all have, Jesus shared alongside of us. He is fully God and fully man and able to do what we were unable to do, keep the law. That thing that was our guardian, that thing that pointed to our sin, that thing that showed us just how incapable we are on our own to please God because Jesus is, was, will forever be fully God and fully man, he was able to do that which we couldn't do. The author of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 4 writes, Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is who Jesus is. We, we so often get lost around Christmas time as picturing Jesus, this infant laying in a manger, the animals gathered around, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. Listen, I can't describe to you what that looks like. I'm not really sure our nativity scenes do a great job of setting that whole scene for us. And really, the, the, the Bible's description of it, while it does give us some clarity of what that night looked like, it leaves a lot of details out because the details aren't important. 
The details aren't what we need to know. We get lost sometimes in trying to recreate these details. And what we miss is that laying there in that manger was the eternal son of God incarnate. Meaning the one who had existed for all eternity. The one through whom all things were created. The one for whom all things were created put on flesh. That fully God became fully man to do that which we are not able to do. That he was able to withstand the temptation. He was able to look in the face of the enemy and quote back the word of God and say, no, he was able to keep the law perfectly in our place. So at just the right time, God sends Jesus, fully God, incarnate, becoming fully man, able to keep the law for us. Why then? Well, verse five tells us to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Why is Jesus sent by God at just the right time, born of a woman, lives a perfect life, dies a sinner's death? Why? So that we might be redeemed because we are those who are under the law. We needed a savior because the law condemned us, but Jesus frees us. A couple of weeks ago, I told you the story of St. Nick punching a heretic in 325 AD. If you were here, you remember that? It's a good time to remind you of that here this Christmas morning. He does this at what was known as uh, the, the Council of Nicaea, 325 AD. And in that sermon in Mark, I read a portion of of the Nicene Creed, which said, and in one Lord Jesus, as we believe, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. And I stopped there. I only read part of the Nicene Creed as a part of that sermon. Let me pick up where I left off and keep reading to you. The Creed continues, for us and for our salvation. So he is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence of Father. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and was made human. Why did the Son of God come to redeem those under the law? Why did he come for us, we are told? For us, the apostles write. For us, the church has affirmed from the beginning. Fully God and fully man came so that we might be saved. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says that while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is one of the few verses in the ESV that I don't love the translation because weak is not the best word there. The best word there is helpless. We weren't just a little bit unable to save ourselves. We were all the way unable to save ourselves. But at the right time, Christ died for us to accomplish something that we could never accomplish on our own. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 that For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Think about what Jesus came to do. He came to become sin for us. 
He made us his brothers by becoming sin for us so that we might have his righteousness. What an exchange. Imagine Christmas where you give somebody a box of sin and they give you a box of pure righteousness. We would think about that kind of exchange as the worst possible exchange in the world, but it's viewed from a salvific position. It's the greatest news on planet earth that Jesus is willing to take your sin for free. And not only take your sin, which we so often focus on, we forget this part that he didn't just take our sin. What did he do? He gives us his righteousness so that we might become the righteousness of God. We become heirs, a part of the family of God because he takes that within us that separates us from God and gives to us that which makes us right with God at just the right time. God implemented his perfect plan to redeem his people. Finally, the eternal condition of the redeemed. So what now? We believe that. What happens now? Well, Paul tells us in verse 6, and because of your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, He uses similar language in Romans chapter 8 where he writes, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Here's what Paul is affirming both in Galatians 4 and in Romans 8, that when we come to faith in Jesus, not only do we get the righteousness of Jesus imparted to us, but we are then filled with the Spirit of God who becomes our seal and guarantee. You maybe gave a gift or received a gift this morning, and somebody bought one of those little you know, warranties on Amazon or something. They try to sell you, you know, $12, $13 more and it's good for like three years. I've cashed in several of those actually. Sometimes they're worth it. Depends on how rough your kids can be with electronics. But that, that kind of warranty, that kind of guarantee pales in comparison to the guarantee that is the Holy Spirit, the eternal condition that we, the redeemed, find ourselves in is one that right now is as true as it will ever be into all of eternity because we are sealed and guaranteed by the Spirit of God himself. God has sent to us, Paul says, the Spirit of his Son into our hearts so that we can look to God who has redeemed us and call him Father. No longer slaves, he says in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. You've gone from being a servant to a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Jesus in John 8, where we had read earlier, says the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Our eternal condition is one that dwells in the house of the Lord forever because we have been made sons and daughters in his house. Back in Romans 8, Paul says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified in him. This is the eternal condition of the redeemed, that we are secure in Jesus now because of the Holy Spirit that lives within us and forever because we have been given a new family, 
We have been given a new name. We have been brought into the family of God. And the son remains in the house forever. So what? Together, as the family of God, we celebrate Jesus, our Savior. There's not a lot of application I need to do here. I I will simply say, if you have never believed this, I would encourage you to believe it and be saved today. I made the same offer last night. I'll make the same offer today. What better thing could you do this Christmas season than believe in Jesus, whom God at just the right time sent to die in your place, to give you his righteousness as he takes your sin so that you can be a part of the family of God. That is a free offer to you today. Believe the gospel and be saved. But recognizing this morning, likely most of who is gathered here is our family, our Christian family, our church family. I wanted our application to be somewhat corporate to be a reminder of what we are doing here. We have come here because we are family together to celebrate one simple truth, not because it is Christmas Day, but because it is Sunday. And on Sundays, the Church of God for 2,000 years have gathered to celebrate this simple truth. Jesus died at just the right time so that he could be our Savior and our Lord. And together, on this Christmas morning, that is what the people of God in this place have come to celebrate. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is true. And that while we were in dead in our trespasses and sin and in desperate need, held captive by our sin and oppressed by the enemy, and condemned by the law, you sent Jesus, born of a woman, the son of God, keeps the law perfectly for us so that we might be right with you, filled with your spirit, and a part of your family forever. Thank you for sending Jesus. May he receive all glory and honor on this Lord's day. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Church family, I invite you to stand with me as we honor our Lord together.